This week on the podcast, we have an amazing guest. I'm so excited because she's been a friend of mine for a long time. We met on uh, the board of America's Charities, but she's going to be talking about her new book, Your Voice Matters, Courageous Conversations You Dare to Have. Welcome to the Using the Whole Whale podcast, where we learn from leaders about new ideas and digital strategies making a difference in the social impact world. This podcast is a proud production of Whole Whale, a B Corp digital agency. Thank you for joining us. Now, let's go learn something. Welcome, Arlene Belton, author, coach, and CEO founder of the Lyceum Group. Hello. Hello, George. How are you? Oh, goodness. It's been far too long, and I was so thrilled when I saw this book pop up, and I was like, that's what you've been up to, among a ton of other things. Yeah, you're right. But, you know, the book was a labor of love. I really felt that it was time for the voice that matters to hit the book stands, honey. I've been working on it for four years. Four years. Wow. Yeah. Takes a while. Yeah. And, you know, it's um, it's carefully written. It's not a long book. It's a careful book, which right. I like. It's got actionable pieces in it of like reflections and writings, um, which is good for a book like this. I wasn't quite sure what I was like picking up and reading based on the title, which I, I don't think is... I, I want to hear how you describe the book okay. for, right. for our audience. Well, the way that I would describe the book is it's a book you have to engage with. It causes you to take a deep look at yourself. The questions really demand that you speak truth to yourself. And the truth stories were put in place so that you could find yourself in the stories. The everyday stories with common folk, with the kinds of issues that come up around the conversations they're afraid to have for all kinds of reasons, which the inhibitors address. Because when we don't want to have that conversation, which I, I think takes courage, it, it causes us to shut down and hold on to stuff that really needs to be brought to light. So that's why the title it, you know, we don't have the conversation sometimes. And we know when we have to have them, George, because we get that funny feeling in our belly or the stuff plays over in our head a million times. Should I say it? Should I not? How do I say it? And so the book is about helping people come forth with those conversations and say them in a way they can be heard. I want to turn to that first point in that very loaded term, of truth. Yes. So this like what truth actually means to myself is is difficult because as you mentioned, uh, there is this sort of identity. There are implicit biases. There are explicit biases. There That's are right. all types of forces working on how we see the world. Um, That's right. Can you tell me how you sort of cut through that clutter and define truth for ourselves, maybe? Yeah, well, one of the things that I say to people about truth is that multiple truths can coexist. In other words, I, George, you could have a truth about something and I could see it a very different way. And in the book, I talk about that having to be okay because the place that you wanna get to is understanding how your truth might be different from mine and how we can come to a place of common ground. 
And that's, it's so truth is how you define it for you. Um, and it may be different for me and that's gotta be okay. But the place where I think there's difficulty is when truth violates people. Um, for example, if you look at, you know, let's just go for it. If you look at the whole issue around voter fraud, for some people, they are wedded to that and there are no facts or anything that can cause them to shift. Although I believe if a campaign was done with factual data over and over and repeated, we might make some headway. But if you look at how it's been dealt with, you've got one side saying there was and another side saying there wasn't. There are pieces of uh, confirmations like courts saying, hey, we're throwing it out. But nobody's put together a concerted effort to change it. So uh, you brought up the issue of beliefs. With beliefs, when we have them, if we do not examine them, it takes hell of to change them. Beliefs are only changed with new evidence, new facts, and new information, and new experiences. Until that happens, for most of us, our beliefs will not change. We have to examine them. We have to get new information that gives us the opportunity to take a look and say, oh, well, maybe I got that one wrong. Or maybe I should look at this a different way. But until beliefs get examined, people stay stuck because what they look for is information that confirms the belief that they have. That's all they look for. They don't look for things that would somehow confront that belief. They play it safe. That's what I call it, playing it safe in the space that they live in, George. Belief is a word. I'm going to put a pin in that because I really want to come back to it. Okay. Uh, because it is different than truth and it has a lot different. of connotations to it. I want to come back to understanding this from your coaching perspective, right? Because you are a coach, you work with yes. a lot of leaders and your type of coaching, I think is needed now more than ever. What is the danger or what is the opportunity to do a positive framing for a leader to understand their, um, their truth, mm -hmm. to understand the, the truth of their team and the landscape mm -hmm. and the sector that they may work in or industry they may work in? What is sort of the opportunity there of being like someone who's like, why am I about to read this book versus like how to manage my capital in an effective way that's going to keep right. downside risk off? Well, first of all, I would say that reading the book will help you increase the capital because for most nonprofits and even corporate groups, if you want to look at it, what happens in those environments is they live by myths and not necessarily by truth. So there is a, an understanding, and it's so fascinating to me, George, because when I go in to coach, one of the things that happens is I do what I call a truth survey. And when you do that truth survey and you bring it back to the leader, many times they are blown away by the data in there. And so I say to them, well, why do you think that you didn't know this? What kept you from the information? And the, the answer always is, it's a timing factor. There's only so much I can do. And so my 
my response to that is you've got to take the time because if you don't understand the truth of what's going on in the organization, how on earth can you lead it? How can you take it to the next step? How can you achieve the vision if there are myths and untruths that are going on that everybody knows about and not you? It doesn't make any sense. And the thing that is so amazing is when a leader takes the step to address whatever myths there are in the organization or whatever untruths are kind of floating around, everything changes, the environment changes. Here's the, the one that I find most often. You got people in the organization who are not performing. Everybody knows they're not performing, but nobody deals with it. Um, and there's all kinds of conversations in private. You know, George is not doing his job. He pisses me off. And yet nobody will address it with George or nobody, if they go to the leader, they go to the leader in private. The leader has a piece of data, but not the whole picture. And if he or she doesn't go to get the whole picture, that person continues to stay in the organization. In many cases, they're like a poison pill because people resent other people who are not performing. They really, truly resent it. And if they don't voice it, it festers and it gets in the way of the organization functioning in the way that it should. So truth telling is critical. Even the stuff that's gone unspoken, it's critical. Yeah, that manifests, I imagine, as giving feedback. And that's right. Exploring, you know, myths that uh, may govern how you believe a company should run and be like, it's always that's been right. said that this is the way we do things because that's right. it was written somewhere and never backed up by data. And that's right. There's that. And it's always been this way. And there's another caveat that goes with that, George. Not only has it always been this way, but every time we try to change it, if you wait long enough, it'll go back to the way it was. There is real energy in that space that if you address it can propel nonprofits, corporations, or whoever to a whole nother level. But there has to be consistency. You can't say, oh, I'm gonna deal with the myth or I'm gonna deal with the untruth and let it go. You have to stay on it. You have to be consistent and people have to see progress. They have to see that something has been done. Another myth I feel like I have seen, heard, uh, maybe even subscribed to at a certain period of time is one that if uh, diversity with you know capital D, yeah. if you just have enough diversity on the team, all the problems will be solved. All you got to do is get a room full of folks that at least represent our country and we're all set at this company and, you know, fix the board, just put the right number of humans and then we're good to go. Fix the C-level and the staff and just make sure the numbers add up and then check that box, move on. Like, I feel like yes. that's a myth. <laughs> it is a myth. And bringing diversity in is only the first step. Yeah. That is when the work begins because the beauty and the dilemma of diversity is that when you bring in people with different perspectives, different viewpoints, different life experiences, 
you sitting across from me have got to understand what those are and what I bring to the table. And the work is never done that allows that diverse person and also the people who, I don't know, what do you call them, non-diverse, <laughs> whatever. I don't know if you give them a label, but in my opinion, everybody's diverse, whether you're white, black, brown. When you come to a team, you come in with your life experience. If I don't understand what your life experience, no matter what color you are, or what ethnic group you belong to, or what your sexual preference is, I'm not going to understand you. And so our working relationship is not going to be optimal until we put in the time to understand what you bring to the table, what I bring to the table, and most importantly, how do we use it? How do we use what you bring? That's critical. So diversity by itself as far as I am concerned, just bringing in a person doesn't work. Because yeah, and you this get, is the rise of the DEIB exactly. uh, field and understanding of what that looks like. That's uh, exactly right. And the myth, if we're talking about myths, George, the myth is you bring in diverse people to the board, you bring in diverse people to the team, and we're done. That's the myth. You're not done. You're just beginning. Yeah. I think it's easier to speak actually to business leaders, and correct me if I'm wrong, um, when you're able to simply say it will help the business. You said it'll help the bottom line. It'll help you get more clients. It'll help you do your work better when you have diverse perspectives with a seat at the table, able to say, hey, uh, we're not being sensitive here. We're not going to reach this audience. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it, I mean, it makes sense. It does. Um, and but I think if it is you, catching but- on. I think it is catching on, but if you don't hear what that person who has a seat at the table has to say, Mm. then it's of no value. I'll give you a good example. Years ago, when I joined the Applebee's board of directors, I was the only woman and the only black. And so they brought me in, um, eight white guys and myself. Mm. (laughs) And luckily, I'm a strong personality. I have viewpoints uh, and I don't back down. I don't shy away. But I also knew that in order to have my place at the table, I had to earn my place at the table. And quite frankly, that's true for everyone. But for, for diverse people, when they're the only one, it's a little more difficult. So. I remember the first board meeting I attended, we were talking about expanding into a new product line. And I asked a very simple question, which was, given who we are as a company, have we nailed our niche? Have we nailed our menu? Do we do it better than anybody else? Can you say unequivocally that we do this better than anyone else? And there was silence in the room. And all of, and then when people started to talk, they said, no, we can't. I said, well, then why would we be looking to diversify and change when we haven't mastered what we already do? We don't know what we do best. So let's get a handle on that and figure it out. Well, I earned my place at the table. You know, the voice had 
something of value to contribute. Uh, and they were willing to listen. Had they not been willing to let, now I have to say in all honesty, there were a couple of people who said, well, I don't think we have to consider that. And there was some dialogue about that. Now I could have pulled back, but I said, well, wait a minute, let's look at it and see why it's important to consider it. So, you know, it's an important thing to have diversity, but again, if you don't listen and pay attention to what that voice brings to the table, it's of no value to you. You might as well not have them. Yeah, I think that's a good uh, that's a good segue into sort of the next part that uh, would challenge the person at an individual level. Like, I mean, yeah. Arlene, you're an, you're an N of one, as we would say. You're right. wildly unique and bold and able to speak your truth in a room full of folks that may look like me. Right. What I loved about this book is that you actually map out these seven inhibitors. Um, mm -hmm. You sort of categorize these seven inhibitors. I'm going to run through them so people can just sort of hear where they might fall because yeah. it is tough. It is risky to raise your voice. You could right. be, uh, well, whatever. I'm going to talk through it. I'm going to see, uh, really think. If you're listening right now, think about where you might fall if you've ever felt one of these pieces. Number one, tendency to avoid or confront fearing conflict. Number two, self-justification, the need to be right. Fear of the consequences, standing in your truth alone. I'd raise my hand on this one. Yeah. Number four, owning unexamined beliefs and values that separate and divide. Number five, denying evidence of truth being distorted. Number six, yielding to unresponsive and disappointing conversations. Number seven, lack of willingness to for, uh, to, for forgiveness and let go, releasing old hurts. Yeah. So I walk through all of those, yeah. Oh, my God. Well, when you, when you look at the, tendon, the first one, tendency to avoid and confront and fearing conflict, that's the one that causes the bellyache, where inside of you, you're saying, oh, my God, should I say it? Should I not? Is it worth it? And all of those things go along with not wanting to confront. Most of us aren't good with confrontation. We just back away from, oh God, I'll keep the peace. You're not really keeping the peace because inside you is real turmoil. And so until you can bring it forward, which I call it taking it out of the darkness and bringing it to light, you, you live with it. And that's the one that churns in your head your mind, you keep going back to it, you're unhappy with yourself, you're unhappy with the situation. And until you confront it, it, it just stays there. It sits there like a heavy weight. And that one is about, you know, there's an old Indian saying in the, in the book, I mention it, fear is what you grapple with until you get your courage. It takes courage to confront and say, hey, this is where I stand on this. It may not be where you stand, but this is where I am. The need to be right is an interesting one. Um, and most of the time that's ego driven, George, because it's like, well, if I'm wrong, does that make me less of a person uh, or of less value? We don't see ourselves um, in a way that says, hey, I don't need to be right about everything. And so what we do when we are ego-driven with that need to be right is we find all, all the justifications in the world 
that support our position, even if they're crazy. And people many times will sit there, they'll listen to you and say, well, that isn't making any sense, but they will not bring it forward because they wanna avoid the confrontation. So in some ways they're very much linked together. The third one, fear of consequences and standing alone. I think we've got great examples of that in the political system right now. And I won't name the parties because they're probably both um, guilty of it, but how many people are willing to stand up and say, wait a minute, this is just not so, it's not right. I don't support this. I have a different view and a different perspective. And stand alone in that if you can if you have the courage to do so it so i don't want you to give away everything in here if you want to like get all these things you got to go read this book I wanna, that's right <laughs> i want to turn around though and say like the way i actually interpreted the the fear of consequences yeah uh, was was a, a much larger world i guess also in our call-in versus call-out culture um it right. goes by another right. other names i gave myself a challenge not to lose bullshit bingo and saying common phrases of, of the time, but in yeah. terms of internally in an organization, if I am putting myself in my own shoes, but also like someone who just started at, you know, the company, yeah, the, the fear, the consequence of saying like, I don't understand why this is an issue, why people are taking it so personally, like there's a lot of risk there in opening up about maybe your own, you know, racial insensitive right. uh, and sensitivity or ignorance on a topic. I mean, like, how dare you not know about this? Like yeah. that would be the fear this sort of yeah. call out versus call in culture that uh, pervades, um, yeah. you know, 168 character narratives. Mm -hmm. Well, the fear of consequences is a biggie. You're, you're right to bring it forward because that's the one that stops us in our tracks. And what I generally say on that one, George, is if there is an issue that you have that you wanna address, that you try to do it one-on-one, -on -one, I think that is a much safer way to do it rather than calling out somebody in a group before you've had a chance to go to that person. Now that requires some vulnerability because for example, if I wanna call out somebody and I feel like I've gotta say it, if I come to you, George, and I say to you, you know what? I've got something I'm not comfortable with and I don't quite know how to say it. I don't even know how to deal with it, but I'd love to explore that with you. Are you willing to have that conversation with me? It's a safer way to do it. It get, it, many times you get respect for doing it. And there's also the time when somebody will say, screw you, I don't wanna do it. But I believe that for you, for me, if I take the first step, in saying, look, I've, I've got something that's on my mind and I don't quite know what to do with it. I don't know how to say it. And I need some help just thinking it through and figuring it out. Are you willing to do that with me? That's an amazing, powerful way to approach that fear of consequence question. Yeah, I guess as a leader, the way I try to think of my role in all of this is creating a culture of safety and yep, absolutely. really looking for leaning on the, the call-in and, and, and showing my own vulnerability and in communicating difficult topics that I have no basis of understanding. But That's right. as a leader, I'm expected to speak 
about a wide range of, of topics that I'm wildly unqualified to um, from yeah, life experience, identity, and power. Right. And as a leader, just think about how powerful it would be if you as the leader begin to model, look, I don't, I don't know anything about this one. I've got to learn something about it. So I got to be the student here and you all got to teach. That's a powerful, powerful way to build a culture that allows people to come forward and say, I don't know, I don't have the answer here. And as the leader, I don't always have the answers. I need some help. That's a beautiful thing. It's absolutely beautiful. Biden did an interesting thing a couple of weeks ago. He was talking about immigration and he said, I don't have all the answers. I got to put together a team to do it. He did it with COVID. I don't know what all the answers are, but I'm going to put a team together to examine it. So we're beginning to see a leader of our country who's beginning to say, you know what? I don't have the answer to this, but you know, we're going to find out and we're going to do it together. You hear him say over and over, we're going to do this together. And I think that's the key place. A leader doesn't have to have all the answers, but you darn well better have some, you know? You, have a plan. you can't, right? You got to have a plan, you got to have a vision, and you want to take people there. But how you make the plan and vision happen is your opening for inviting people in where you can say as a leader, okay, so here's the plan. How are we going to implement this? We need all different kinds of expertise. How are we going to bring it in and use? everything that people have because you're all coming from a different place but we want to hear all the voices and we want to have the voices contribute i want to expand now as we kind of get outside the bubble of our own companies our own leaders and into yeah. the world that we then bump into and i want to start it with uh, the, the sort of like the true story you told in there is like and my interpretation of it is like you talk about talking with an artist friend about artists on the beach and you're like looking yeah. at a cloud and the way the artist saw it versus the way you saw it. And I think that's, it's interesting and I'll let you elaborate, but I, I will caveat that in general, in my walks, I don't trust folks that see clouds just as white and sky yeah. just as blue. It makes okay. me nervous. <laughs> it makes me very nervous yeah. when yeah. a human says all clouds are white, all sky mm -hmm. is blue. Yeah. Next topic. And I'm like, mm -hmm. mm. Can you yeah. elaborate a bit more on that? Well, <clears throat> the thing that is important, you know, and the discussion on the beach, and I don't want to give too much away because it, it oh, is good a great, stuff in the book. I'll buy that book. Yeah, you can now a, find it. Uh, <laughs> book again is Your Voice story. Matters. Yay, Joyce. Thank you for the plug, George. Um, you know, we all have the, the place where we walk the place where we live, the experiences that we have in life. Our work really is to expand that space and to understand the space that other people walk in and other people experience. Um, and because I see multiple colors in the clouds, um, doesn't mean that you do, but I can help you get there. I can help you get there. So that the key in that story is not to shut out another point of view. 
because it may expand yours. In fact, I say it will if you're open to it. it when I talk about what is on your heart, that's an important part of all of this because if our hearts and our minds are open, for me, I believe anything is possible. I truly, truly believe that. And for most people I know, when they have an open heart and an open mind, I know it instinctively. George, I know that you can feel when somebody has shut down. You can just feel it. The energy shifts, uh, how they engage with you shifts, and you know that you're not going to get through no matter what. When I find that and I experience that, I call time out. Say, you know, we just need some space here. And we both need time to kind of regroup and see where this energy will take us. But it's important to acknowledge when people tune out even. I, I, um, I was in Africa once doing a session with a group of religious leaders. I was gonna and, jump in on this. There are oh, no black angels. Right. I thought that oh. was wild. Wasn't that wild? Well, so actually, I, let me tee you up on this one. I really, okay. I actually have it in my notes and oh, it's good. like you're reading off my notes. Stop that. All right, good. Out of my head. Here's where I see the word belief coming back into our conversation. Okay. And ideology and ideology and mm -hmm. where we find ourselves in our country with various people, almost with religious fervor, ignoring yeah. facts, mm -hmm. a word that is objectively true based on science research and confirmation um, ignoring that because of a, you know, dogmatic like belief in something that, you know, is I am of this, I am of this belief and that's part of my identity. That's and right. To then suddenly say like vaccines are okay or masks yeah. are okay or not okay. It, it goes beyond that sort of objective reality in the world and more we are working against Mm -hmm. uh, entrenched beliefs tied to identity where people are saying those clouds are all white. I don't care yep. whatever data says, all those clouds are white. That's right. And, you know, it was a little, um, you know, it was, it, it comes right back down to maybe this story about uh, there are no black angels. Right. <laughs> so right. help me, help me understand that. And also that, that parallel to like, there are a lot of people out there that don't believe that there are black angels. Yeah. Well, part of what the story uh, illustrates is that there are radically different views. I had to make an assessment whether or not I could influence a belief that was so radicalized and so written in stone. Um, I had to make a quick decision about whether or not that was worth pushing. And in the, in the story, what I absolutely came to was there was nothing I was going to do in that moment that could convince him that there were black angels. So I simply said, for me, there are black angels. So what I did was I put my truth there to live with his truth and I left it alone. Sometimes you cannot push it. Um, so beliefs are it, unless they get examined, they're so entrenched, there's almost nothing you can do to change them unless you have a concerted effort and a commitment to the person, to the group, 
to really dialogue about it and really tear away the layers to look at what is really going on. Because all of those beliefs, if you look at your own, if I look at mine, they come from my life experience. They come from what I've been taught. And unless I'm willing to take a look at what I've been taught, what I believe, where it came from, and what justification I have for it, you're not going to change it. You just won't change it. It takes work, it takes time, and it takes commitment. It also takes compassion and empathy because there are some people who will hold beliefs that are definitely opposed to your own. And those are the people who are the hardest to hear. And those are the people we need to listen to most to try to understand. But that's a tough road. It's not easy. And as I said, it takes time, compassion, and empathy to get there. And sometimes you got to let it go. Sometimes you got to let it go and see what you can do on another front. Yeah, I think that's, um, you know, it, it's part of how truth is received. Um, that's right. That's right. Alrighty. We uh, have touched on a lot of points in the book. I don't want to give it away. Go, go buy right. the book. I want to move to rapid book. fire. Go buy that book. Yeah, go buy the book. In the show notes, so you can find it there. But I want to move to rapid fire. Quick response. Okay. Questions. Are you are you ready? I'm ready. What is one tech tool or website that you or your organization has started using the past year? Well, I've started using Zoom technology, but now Zoom. there's Ring and there's webinars and there are all of these different things, and trying to decide which is the right one for whatever event is challenging. What tech issues are you currently battling with? Uh, updates. I hate updates. <laughs> Every time there's an update, I got to learn. I got to relearn how to use my programs and my systems. So I, I wish updates would go on hold for a minute. <laughs> what is coming up in the next year that has you the most excited? Um, you know what? The new administration has me most excited because I think it's going to offer the opportunity for voices to be heard that haven't been heard for a long time. And I think it's going to bring the country to a place where we start to unify again. And that's exciting to me. Talk about a mistake that you made early in your career that shapes the way you do things now. Oh, Lordy. Um, early in my career, I would withhold a lot of what I felt. Um, and, I, you know, it was the early days in corporations where there weren't many people who looked like me or women. And I would sit and I would have an idea, but I would be afraid to put it out there because of being judged. And of course, today, that doesn't happen to me at all. I have long since let that go. But it was a real mistake because what I learned, George, was I'd be sitting on the idea and then somebody would come up and say it. And then I would say to myself, well, hell, I thought that two days ago. Why didn't I say it? So whatever it is you've got in your head or an idea or a thought, go for it. 
because the only thing that can happen is somebody can say, hey, it's not a good idea. And you go on to the next one. Let it go. Don't hold on to it. Do you believe nonprofits can successfully go out of business? I do, but I think it's going to be a long time. I think there is a need for that segment that nobody else fills. And if they do go out of business, we're going to have to have a very different infrastructure in place to support people who don't have. So I don't think it's anytime soon. Um, and maybe they always need to be there because they do bring a different voice. They do bring a different perspective, thankfully. And I'm grateful for that. Uh, they do serve a population that is underserved. And all of that is necessary. And by the way, there are nonprofits who serve those who have. You know, when you look at drug abuse and mental institutions, a lot of those people have resource, financial resources. So the nonprofit world does serve the underserved, but it also serves other people who need help. And I think in this world we live in, George, there's always going to be people who need help. So I don't see them going out of business anytime soon, thankfully. What is something you think you should start or stop doing? What I think I need to start doing is to put my voice out there a little bit more. I have in the past couple of years just kind of shut down a bit because I wanted to regroup and rethink uh, the last chapter of my life. You know, I am on my way down the other end of the slope. So what do I want to do? What do I want to contribute? So I've pulled back a little bit. So I want to get my voice out there again and share whatever wisdom I have gained through the years with those who are willing to receive it and where it can be useful. Um, what I want to stop doing is holding, holding on to stuff. The older I get, the more I realize that that stuff I hold on to makes the bag I carry pretty damn heavy. And so I want to just start taking the junk out of the bag and not holding on to stuff that doesn't serve me well and causes resentment and doesn't serve the world well. Because I think all of us are in here to be of service to ourselves, to one another, and to the world. That's what's important to me. If you had a magic wand to wave across the social impact sector, what would it do? My God, that wand would unify the sector and get them to a place where they do what they do best and that they call in one another to complement what they do and realize that they don't all they don't have to do it all in their space and give up a little territory and invite others in uh, I, can't, I can't, I remember early on in the AIDS epidemic when everybody was doing something and we didn't come together. We were all trying to do housing. We we're all trying to do service. We we're all trying to do outreach. And in the epidemic, we finally learned that, you know what? Some people do outreach better. Some people do service better. Some people do housing better. Let's stay in our own lane and bring people in to join us. That's what I do. Unify, unify, share networks.
Good looking wand. All right. Uh, how did you get started in the social impact sector? It's, it's a funny story, actually. Uh, my kids were in Head Start. And that was way back when, George. That was in the early 70s. Um, and the thing that was fascinating to me is that parents didn't have a voice. So I became a parent organizer. And the next thing I knew, I was an activist. And so I got involved in my community with the mayor and getting street signs and get all kinds of stuff that our neighborhoods needed at the time. But that's where it happened for me, being a parent, seeing a need and fulfilling that need. And the fascinating thing is you see young people doing that today. They're filling that space. They're seeing a need, they're stepping up to the plate and wow, they're amazing. All right, what advice would you give college grads looking to enter the social impact sector? Go for it. I would say we need you. Um, whatever it is you have to contribute, just bring it with the passion and the, oh my God, expertise that you have and don't doubt yourself, but just go for it. But find the place where you have passion and bring in all the passion and expertise that you can. Bring yourself, show up fully alive, engaged, and committed. What advice did your parents give you that you did or did not heed? Oh God, my father, he always said, look, I don't care what you do in life. You can scrub toilets, but be the best damn toilet scrubber there is. And I have used that throughout my entire life with anything that I approach. That voice rings in my ear. Okay, gotta be the best toilet scrubber I can be. But it really has served me well, George really in every aspect of my life. At the time, I thought he was loony, but as I have grown into adulthood, that was a very wise and sage thing to say, even though it was a little rough. <laughs> Chosen. <laughs> okay, final question. How do people find you? How do people help you? Oh my gosh. Well, they can find me on EarleneBelton at gmail.com. Send me a text. I am on Instagram, um, and that's an easy one. It's Erling Belton. And for the book, you just go on Amazon. There's a hashtag for that. Your voice matters. Courageous conversations you dare to have. I dare you to have that conversation you've been holding on to. I dare you to go find this book. The links yes. are, of course, in uh, show description, but of course, you can also just tap that in, Your Voice Matters, on Amazon, wherever you buy books. Arlene, thank you. Thank oh, you, thank thank you for joining, for sharing your wisdom, and uh, I learned something. So Fantastic. Well, it's always a joy to be with you. You're just an amazing human being. Aww, I love man, your smile, you. I love your energy, and I love your intellect. Mwah! Take care. Take care, Stay my safe. love. Stay safe and healthy. Until next time. This has been Using the Whole Whale podcast. If you want to keep learning more about these topics and others, head on over to wholewhale.com university to keep learning with us.
Thanks, as always, to gregthomasmusic.org for his tunes that underwrite our tracks. They're fantastic. Hope you're doing well, Greg. And just a reminder, subscribes really help us on any platform that you listen to us on. Please give a thought to click and subscribe and maybe even a comment because we like hearing from you. 